You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. And that, of course, is the trailer to one of the most loved and celebrated film musicals of all time, 1952's Singing in the Rain, starring Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds, Gene Hagen, and Sid Sharice, directed by Stanley Downing for MGM. Hi, this is Andy, and I like movies, all kinds of movies. Films from classic Hollywood, that's films made before 1960, such as this film, Singing in the Rain. Films from New Hollywood, that's the films of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and films from New Hollywood, which is from 1990 to today. And today we're going to do a deep dive and reminiscence of the 1952 Singing in the Rain, one of my all-time favorite films. It routinely falls in my top five films of all time. I'm happy again. And now some deep history on this. Singing in the Rain was made by the so-called Freed Unit of MGM Studios, which is named after producer Arthur Freed, who produced more than 40 musicals for MGM from 1930 to 1960. Uh, the creative forces of this unit, Freed, Vincent Minnelli, Stanley Donnan, and actor-choreography Gene Kelly, collaborated on such gems as Meet Me in St. Louis, The Pirate, On the Town, An American in Paris, Royal Wedding, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Gigi, and of course, Singing in the Rain. So Freed conceived the idea of a movie based on the back catalog of songs written by himself and Nacho Herb Brown and called in Betty Compton and Adolph Green from New York to come up with a story to tie the songs together and to write the script. And the list of songs that they gave them to write a script about was amazing. Singing in the Rain, which was first used in the Hollywood Review of 1929. Fit as a Fiddle and Ready for Love, which was first used in 1933. All I Do is Dream of You, first used in 34. A Beautiful Girl, which was used in 1933. You Are Meant for Me in 1929. Good Morning, which was first used in Babes in Arms in 1939. Would You in 1936. Broadway Rhythm, which was used in 1936. And the Broadway Melody, which was used in 1929. And You Are My Lucky Star, which was used in Broadway Melody of 1936. Two songs that were original to the film was Moses Supposes and the Make Em Laugh number, which is really very similar to Be a Clown when they decided they needed to write a solo song for Donald McConnell. Because many of the songs had originally been written during the time when silent films were giving way to talkies and musicals were popular with audiences, Comden and Green came up with the idea that the story should be set during the transitional period in Hollywood, 
when movies went from silent to talkies. Dancing and singing in the rain. Now, Howard Keeled was mentioned as a possible lead. They tried to work up a story involving a star of Western films who makes a comeback as a singing cowboy, but they kept gravitating to a story about a swashbuckling romantic hero with a vaudeville background who survives the transition by falling back on his abilities as a song and dance man. And again, it's a story which Gene Kelly would be well suited for. Now, Kelly could not be approached at this time as he was deeply immersed in an American in Paris, but the script was approved by Freed and MGM's head of production, Dory Sherry, and they decided to wait for Kelly to be available. I'm singing in the rain. Now, they gave Kelly the script, and Kelly and Donna responded enthusiastically and immediately became involved in rewrites and adjustments to the script. Now, Comden, Green, Kelly, and Donna were all old friends, and the process went pretty smoothly. Now, the film went into production with a budget of $1.9 million, but ultimately rang up a final price tag of around $2.5 million. And unheard of, $150,000 of it went to Walter Plunkett's costumes designs. Now, although the final price overshot MGM's budget, the studio quickly realized the wisdom of its investment when the film returned a $7.7 million profit upon its initial release. Get on with it. Yes, get over We open with a shot of three people in rain gear with umbrellas standing with their backs to us in the rain. One by one on each of the umbrellas we get their names. Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds. We then get a short overture that introduces the rest of the cast, the musical composers, and the co-directors, Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnett. After the overture, we fade into a Hollywood premiere, complete with spotlights, for the biggest picture of 1927, Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont in The Royal Rascal. Now, Dora Bailey is played by Madge Blake, and the only other thing that I know her for is TV's Batman. She played on Harriet. Now, one by one, there are stars that appear on this red carpeting for the opening in a sort of a live-action Warner Brothers cartoon version spoof of 1920s silent films. And then next comes Cosmo Brown, Donald O'Connor. Cosmo is Don Lockwood's best friend. He plays the piano on the set for Don and Lena to get them into those romantic moods. And finally, we get our glamorous stars, Don Lockwood, Gene Kelly, and Lena Lamont, Gene Hagen. Those romantic lovers of the screen, Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont. We then go into a flashback montage of Don and Cosmo's backstory, where we discover that what Don says publicly is in stark contrast to what really is happening on the screen. Now, this helps set up shorthand for what is going to go on in the film. What one sees and says can be much, much different than what is truly going on. You've come a long way together, Don. Won't you tell us how it all happened? Well, Lena and I have made a number of pictures together. Oh, no, no, Don. I want your story from the beginning. Well, Dora, not in front of all these people. Well, to begin with, any story of my career would have to include my lifelong friend, Cosmo Brown. Well, Dora, I've had one motto which I've always lived by. Dignity. Always dignity. We then get our first musical number of these two all-time greats. We played the finest symphonic halls in the country. It has a fiddle ready for love. I can jump over the moon up above. It has a fiddle and ready for love. Haven't a worry, haven't a care. 
Now, this musical number shows off their terrific song and dance ability, as well as O'Connor's wonderful comic timing. We then cut to their first experience in the pictures as background music mood creators. This scene does show us how Don and Lena meet, as well as introduce us to the wonderful Douglas Fowley as the put-upon director. Roscoe Dexter. Okay, Lena, you hate him. You're resisting him. Keep that mood music going. Okay, now, Phil, you come in. Keep on grinding. Now you see her, Phil. That's it. Now here's the bit part where you get it on the jaw. Ah! No, no, that wasn't right, Bert. You were supposed to go head over heels over the bar and crash into the glasses. Try it again. Okay, Bert? Bert! Oh, that swell, just swell. Take him away, fellas. Now Don steps up to perform on the screen. Hey, Mr. Dexter, I think I can do that for you. What, you? You're a musician. That's a moot point. No kidding. What's your name? Don Lockwood, sir, but the fellas all call me Donald. Wise guy, huh? Okay, I'll try you. Get this guy in a bird suit. And thus becomes Monumental Pictures' lead stuntman. Now you see him. That's it. Now here's where you get it right on the jaw. That was wonderful. You got any more little chores you want done in this picture? <laughs> now Don is introduced to R.F. Simpson, Millard Mitchell. Hey, Don! Don, I want you to meet the producer of the picture, Mr. R.F. Simpson. Hello! How do you do, son? I just saw some of the rushes for the picture and asked Dexter here who the team of stuntmen were. He told me they were all you. I think you've got something, Don. I'm going to put you and Lena together in a picture. Come over to my office after lunch. We'll discuss a contract. Thanks, Mr. Simpson! So, Don and Lena's personal relationship is nothing like their public persona, which is really the point of this film. Now this short scene again is good shorthand to get us all caught up on necessary backstory as well as bringing up key points of the film and to understand the type of film we are about to see. We then watch the premiere of their silent film and when the smash picture is complete, Don does all the talking. Actors are much good at speaking in public so we'll just act out our thanks. We then go backstage and we understand why Don has done all the talking. Lena, the publicity department, Rod here, thought it would be much better if Don made all the speeches for the team. Why? Now, Gene Hagen does a wonderful job in the role of Lena Lamont and was nominated for an Academy Award, justifiably so. But the role of Lena Lamont was originally written with Judy Holliday in mind. Now, Holliday was a close friend of Betty Compton and Adolph Green, and they even modeled the character on routines they had worked up with Holliday back when they were all part of a satirical group called the Reavers in New York. But timing was everything, and the idea of casting Holiday was vetoed after she hit it big in Born Yesterday just two years before. Now, everyone figured she'd be uninterested in the supporting part, but as it turned out, Gene Hagen, Holiday's understudy on the Broadway version of Born Yesterday, got the part. Now, let's talk about the only actor nominated for an Oscar in this film, Gene Hagen. Gene Shirley Verhagen, later shortened to Hagen, was born in Chicago, Illinois on August 3, 1923. Hagen and her family moved to Elkhart, Indiana when she was 12. She subsequently graduated from Northwestern University where she studied drama and was a roommate of fellow actress Patricia Neal. Hagen began her show business career in the late 1940s performing in radio programs. She also dabbled in Broadway plays and made her film debut in 1949 with a role as a comical femme fatale in the Katherine Hepburn Spencer Tracy film Adam's Rib. She had her first leading role the following year when she starred opposite Sterling Hayden in the film noir classic The Asphalt Jungle, a performance which gained her considerable attention and praise. She then understudied Judy Holliday in the Broadway version of Born Yesterday. And this performance brought her to the attention of the brass at MGM, which cast her in the role of Lena Lamont in Singing in the Rain. She earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Following Singing in the Rain, she joined the cast of the television sitcom The Danny Thomas Show and was subsequently nominated for three Emmy Awards for her role as Margaret Wilson, the wife of Danny Thomas's character. But she grew tired of the rather bland and boring role of the sitcom Mom and left after three seasons. Uh, she next played Frida Daniels in The Shaggy Dog, and then started bouncing around television, appearing in such TV shows as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Jim Backus Show, The Andy Griffith Show, 
Ben Casey, Wagon Train, Dr. Kildare. Ill health forced her to retire soon thereafter, uh, but she would pop up on occasion in roles in such TV series as Starsky and Hutch and The Streets of San Francisco, and filmed the role of the landlady in Alexander, The Other Side of Dawn in 1977, shortly before her death of esophageal cancer on August 29, 1977, at the age of 54. Now, Don and Cosmo have car trouble en route to the premiere party, and when Don is mobbed by adoring fans, he tries to escape and lands in the car of an unsuspecting well, Kathy Selden, Debbie Reynolds, and one of the better meet-cute moments. And that's one of the best things about this film, the smart storytelling by Betty Comden, and Adolph Green. So let's talk about Comden and Green. Comden and Green, famed writing partners who worked together for over 60 years on Broadway, on TV, and in Hollywood. Winners of seven Tony Awards and nominated for two Oscars. They met in 1938 while both were making the rounds of theatrical agents. The Village Vanguard, a bohemian nightclub in Greenwich Village, was seeking a new show, and the group that became known as the Reavers stepped in. It featured Comden, Green, and an unknown actress by the name of Judy Tuvin, who later would change her name to Judy Holliday, one of the most brilliant film comedians of the 1950s. In 1944, Comden and Green joined with composer Leonard Bernstein and choreographer Jerome Robbins and created the musical On the Town, which later was filmed by MGM. They would work for MGM, quite a bit in the 40s and 50s. MGM employed them frequently in the 1950s, having them write the screenplay for Good News in 47, The Barclays of Broadway in 49, On the Town, based on their musical play in 49, and then tapped them for the great Singing in the Rain in 1952, then followed that up with the Fred Astaire vehicle, The Bandwagon in 53, It's Always Fair Weather in 55, Auntie Maine in 58, Bells Are Ringing in 60, and then they started bouncing back and forth between TV, movies, and uh, Broadway. Their Broadway credits included Wonderful Town in 1953, which won them their first Tony Award. And then they won six others for Hallelujah Baby, Applause, on the 20th Century, The Will Rogers Follies. They were named to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1980. They remained collaborators right up until Adolph Green's death on October 23rd in 2002. Comden passed away November 23, 2006. Now at the premiere party, producer Simpson shows a reel of a new concept, talking pictures. Listen, this is going to hand you a lot of laughs. There's a man been coming into my office now for months, and well, you got that gadget working, Sam? All set, Mr. Simpson. Okay, let her go. This then sets up the main conflict of this film, the transition from silent films to talkies. There's somebody talking behind that screen. Someone from behind that screen, Mr. Simpson. Oh, no, I'm right here. And then Don and Kathy meet up again. I have a delicious surprise. It's a very special cake. I want you kiddies to have the first piece. Well, if it isn't Ethel Barrymore. Now, Don is smitten with Kathy, and why wouldn't he be? 19-year-old Debbie Reynolds is just perky and cute in this scene. Now, let's talk about one of the last giant stars of old Hollywood, Debbie Reynolds. I have called Debbie Reynolds the last great star of old Hollywood, and I think that's apt, for she came up right at the end of the studio system and was instantly catapulted to stardom with her role in Singing in the Rain in 1952. She was born April 1st, 1932 in El Paso, Texas, and began her career at MGM after she won a beauty contest at the age of 16 impersonating Betty Hutton. Her first screen role was as Boo's Girlfriend at Wedding, in an uncredited role in the film June Bride. She then gained notoriety in The Daughter of Rosie O'Grady and Three Little Words in 1950, and then was cast as Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain in 1952. After that, 
Uh, she was in the affairs of Dobie Gillis in 53, Give a Girl a Break in 53, Susan Slept Here, Athena Hit the Deck, The Tender Trap, and Tammy and the Bachelor in 1957. She starred in the cineramic epic How the West Was Won as Lilith Prescott. Uh, that's the movie that I first saw Debbie Reynolds in. And then was nominated for an Academy Award as the unsinkable Molly Brown in 1964. Uh, a movie I saw a lot as a kid, being a good Catholic kid. Uh, Sister Anne in The Singing Nun in 1966. And then followed that up with Divorce American Style in 1967. Like most song and dance people, now that the studio system was over, she starred in her own TV series, The Debbie Reynolds Show, from 69 to 70, and then really bounced around between uh, TV, movies, and Broadway stage from there on out, appearing in uh, such uh, items as The Love Boat and Perry Mason. Oh, yeah, and she was the voice of Charlotte in Charlotte's Web in 1973. Uh, Reynolds also had several business ventures, including ownership of a dance studio in a Las Vegas hotel and casino, and she was an avid collector of film memorabilia. Uh, she served as the president of an organization that was dedicated to mental health causes, and she performed successfully on stage, television, and film, including a long Las Vegas stint well into her 80s. In 2015, she received the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award, and in 2016, she received the Academy Award Jean Hersholt Humanitarian Award. And about the same time, a documentary about her life and the life of her daughter, famed actress Carrie Fisher. The documentary was entitled Bright Lights, starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. This turned out to be her final film appearance. Her daughter, Carrie Fisher, died on December 27, 2016. The next day, Reynolds was taken to the hospital after suffering a severe stroke, and she passed away one day after her beloved daughter. Now back at Monumental Pictures, where they are still making more silent films, Don and Cosmo talk about the big smash hit, The Jazz Singer. Now Don and Cosmo are walking through the studios, and Don is still pining for Kathy. Cosmo tries to cheer Don up, and we get the great number, Make Him Laugh. Short people have long faces, and long people have short faces. Big people have little humor, and little people have no humor at all. <laughs> and in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said, be an actor, my son, but be a comic. Now, the make them laugh sequence was created because Gene Kelly felt that Donald O'Connor needed a solo number. And as O'Connor noted in an interview, Gene didn't have a clue as to the kind of number it was meant to be. So the two of them brainstormed ideas in the rehearsal room and came up with a compendium of gags and shtick that O'Connor had done for years, some of which he had performed in vaudeville. Now O'Connor recalled, Every time I got a new idea or remembered something that had worked well for me in the past, Gene wrote it down and, bit by bit, the entire number was constructed. So let's talk about my favorite performer in this film. Donald O'Connor. Though he considered Danville, Illinois to be his hometown, O'Connor was born in St. Elizabeth Hospital in Chicago. His parents were vaudeville entertainers. She was a bareback rider and he was a circus strongman and acrobat. O'Connor joined the family act when he was only about 13 months old. When O'Connor was two, he and his sister Arlene were in a car crash outside a theater in Hartford, Connecticut. Donald survived, but his sister did not. A few weeks later, his father died of a heart attack while dancing on stage. Then O'Connor joined a dance act with his mother and elder brother Jack. They were billed as the O'Connor family, the royal family of vaudeville. They toured the country doing singing, dancing, comedy, and acting. O'Connor began performing in movies in 1937, making his debut at age 11 in Melody for Two, appearing with his family act. He was also in Columbia Pictures, It Can't Last Forever. O'Connor next signed a contract with Paramount. He appeared in Men With Wings in 1938, directed by William Wellen, and then was in Sing You Sinners in 1938, playing Bing Crosby's younger brother. In 1941, O'Connor signed with Universal Pictures for $200 a week, starting with What's Cooking in 1942, a B-level movie with the Andrews Sisters. That film was popular, and Universal began to develop O'Connor and Peggy Ryan as their version of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. So he, Ryan, and the Andrews sisters were in Private Buckaroo in 1942 and Give Out Sisters in 1942. In 1943, O'Connor and Ryan were in Mr. Big, and O'Connor's popularity soared. 
and he was promoted from a B-movie to A-movie status. Now, O'Connor was drafted into the Army in 1943, but he already had four films in the can, as it were, which then came out while he was in the Army. This Is Life, The Mary Monahans, Bowery to Broadway, and Patrick the Great. Upon his return from the war in 1946, O'Connor was paired opposite the biggest female star Universal had at that time, Deanna Durbin, in Something in the Wind. He also starred in Feudin' Fussin' and a Fightin' with Marjorie Maine and Percy Kilbridge. Yep, Mom Pa Kettle. And, yes sir, that's my baby with Gloria DeHaven. Now, in 1949, O'Connor played the lead role in Francis, the story of a soldier befriended by a talking mule. The film was a huge success. Now, as a consequence, his musical career was constantly interrupted by production of one Francis film per year until 1955. O'Connor later said the films were fun to make. Actually, they were quite challenging. I had to play straight in order to convince the audience that the mule could talk. And then in 1952, O'Connor received an offer to play Cosmo in Singing in the Rain, and it earned him a Golden Globe Award for Best Performance by an Actor in a Comedy or a Musical. And then in 1952, O'Connor signed a three-picture deal with Paramount. He went back to Universal for Francis Goes to West Point and then returned to MGM for I Love Melvin, a musical with Debbie Reynolds. After that, he began appearing regularly on TV. He then supported Ethel Merman in Call Me Madam in 1953 at 20th Century Fox, later saying the film contained his best dancing. After Francis covers The Big Town in 1953, Universal put O'Connor in a musical, Walking My Baby Back Home with Janet Leigh. He did Francis Joins the Whack in 1954, then played Tim Donahue in the 20th Century Fox all-star musical There's No Business Like Show Business, which featured Irving Berlin's music and also starred with Ethel Merman, Marilyn Monroe, Dan Daly, Mitzi Gaynor, and Johnny Ray. He was signed to play Bing Crosby's partner in White Christmas, but O'Connor contracted pneumonia and was replaced in the film by Danny Kaye. He went back to television for The Donald O'Connor Show in 1954 to 1955. It lasted one season. And then he was a regular host of NBC's Colgate Comedy Hour. O'Connor was reluctant to keep making the Francis films, but agreed to make Francis in the Navy in 1955. Now, O'Connor and Bing Crosby united in Anything Goes at Paramount in 1956, and that studio also released The Buster Keaton Story in 1957, in which O'Connor had the title role. After that, O'Connor's star started to dim, much like many of the song and dance people of the old MGM Universal days. He went back and forth between minor roles in film, like The Wonders of Aladdin and That Funny Feeling, and also did guest stints on TV series like The Jackie Gleason Show, Ellery Queen, The Bionic Woman, Police Story, and Hunter. He was in two different versions of Alice in Wonderland in the mid-80s. He played the Mock Turtle in a Great Performances version of Alice in Wonderland in 1983, and the Lori Bird in a TV movie version of Alice in Wonderland in 1985. He was a somewhat regular on The Love Boat and was last seen in the Jack Lemmon Walter Matthau film Out to Sea in 1997. Now, Connor had undergone quadruple heart bypass surgery in 1990 and he nearly died from double pneumonia in January 1998. He died from complications of heart failure on September 27, 2003, at the age of 78. He earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. Now, some notes about Make Him Laugh. For this number, Gene asked Donald to revive a trick he had done as a young dancer, running up a wall and completing a somersault. This number was so physically taxing that O'Connor, who smoked four packs of cigarettes a day at the time, ended up in the hospital with exhaustion. Now, unfortunately, an accident ruined all the initial footage, so after a brief rest, O'Connor, ever the professional, agreed to do the difficult number all over again. Now, O'Connor recalled, I was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day then, and getting up those walls was murder. They had to bank one wall so I could make it up and then through another wall. We filmed that whole sequence in one day. We did it on a concrete floor. My body just had to absorb this tremendous shock. Things were building to such a crescendo that I thought I'd have to commit suicide for the ending. I came back on the set three days later. All the grips applauded. Gene applauded, told me what a great number it was. Then Gene said, do you think you could do that number again? I said, sure, anytime. He said, good, because we're going to have to do it again tomorrow. Now, Donald O'Connor admitted that he did not enjoy working with Gene Kelly since Kelly was somewhat of a tyrant. O'Connor said that for the first several weeks, he was terrified of making a mistake and being yelled at by Kelly. Now, this is probably a good time for an intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. 
Settle back now, content, comfortable, well-fed, and ready for some fine entertainment. Is everybody happy? Then let's go. It's showtime. Ready, Don? All set, Roscoe. Well, here we go again. I think we have another smash on our hands. I hope so. You're Don tootin' we have. Now, back at Monument Pictures, the dueling cavalier starts filming. Don and Lena's hatred for each other is shown while they are filming a silent picture together. Don learns that Lena is the one responsible for getting Kathy fired from her job. Why, you rattlesnake, you. You got that poor kid fired. That's not all I'm gonna do if I ever get my hands on it. I never heard of anything so low. Fine, fine. Looks great. Now, once again, director Don and shows the visuals. Don and Lena look like they're in love. And the behind the scenes, the words spoken by these two enemies, are complete opposite. It's a masterful job of writing and directing. Just then, producer Simpson steps in and stops the filming. Everybody go home until further notice. What is this? Yeah, what's the matter, R.F.? The jazz singer. That's what's the matter, the jazz singer. Oh, my darling little mammy. Down in Alabama. My little baby. Oh, no, this is no joke, Cosmo. It's a sensation. The public is screaming for more. More what? Talking pictures. Talking pictures. Ah, it's just a freak. Yeah, what a freak. We should have such a freak at this studio. I told you talking pictures were a menace, but no one would listen to me. Simpson decides to make every film going forward a talkie. But there's just one problem. Mr. Simpson, talking pictures. I think you should wait Every studio is jumping on the bandwagon, Dexter. All the theaters are putting in sound equipment. We don't want to be left out of it. Yeah? Don, believe me, it will be a sensation. Lamont and Lockwood, they talk. Well, of course we talk. Don't everybody? So let's talk about the director, the great Stanley Donnan. Born on April 13, 1924 in Columbia, South Carolina, Donnan was inspired by Fred Astaire's dancing and flying down to Rio and started attending dance classes from the age of 10. He steadily worked his way through Hollywood, and while working as an assistant choreographer in 1941, he met and befriended the actor Gene Kelly. Kelly, being the brash extrovert and energetic side of the partnership, Donnan became the more refined and relaxed partner. Three years later, the two men renewed their collaboration in Hollywood and had much to reinvigorate the musical genre. For the next decade, they worked side by side as choreographers and co-directors, a relationship Donnan described as wonderful but also trying at times. And they were linked to MGM's Arthur Freed unit. Between the two of them, they directed classic musicals like On the Town and Singing in the Rain, and co-wrote the original story for Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In 1949, MGM signed Donnan to a seven-year contract as director. From then on, he and Kelly went their separate ways. As a director, he directed On the Town in 49, Royal Wedding in 51, Singing in the Rain in 52, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers in 54, It's Always Fair Weather in 55, Funny Face as 57, and was the uncredited fill-in director for Kismet. Donnan left MGM and the Freed Unit for Paramount, where he did The Pajama Game, Indiscreet, Damn Yankees, Once More with Feeling, Surprise Package, The Grass is Greener, Charade, and Arabesque. He completed his Paramount contract with Bedazzled, the Dudley Moore Peter Cook musical in 1967. From there, he became a freelance director and would work on occasion, but not nearly as often as he did in the studio system, directing Gene Wilder in The Little Prince, Lucky Lady with Liza Minnelli and Gene Hackman, Movie Movie, the science fiction film Saturn 3 with Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett, and Blame It on Rio in 1984. He would then go into semi-retirement after that, directing the Lionel Richie Dancing on the Ceiling video and an episode of Moonlighting. Donnan died in 2019 at the ripe old age of 95. Anyone for tennis? Now, over a musical montage, we see the change in Hollywood and the filming of a new musical number, Beautiful Girl, a number that features many, many brilliant costumes. Now, costume designer Walter Plunkett said that this was the most work he ever did on a film, including Gone with the Wind. Now, both films were period pieces, but Sing in the Rain required a greater number of elaborate, ornately detailed costumes 
They had to be more accurate, too, since 1952 audiences remembered Hollywood in the late 20s more clearly than 1939 audiences remembered the Civil War. All told, Plunkett designed about 500 costumes for the film. Now, most of the costumes from this film were eventually acquired by Debbie Reynolds and housed in her massive collection of original film costumes, sets, and props. Many of these items were sold at a 2011 auction in Hollywood. While most items were sold to private collectors, Donald O'Connor's green check fit as a fiddle suit and shoes were purchased by Costume World, Inc. and are now on permanent display at the Costume World Broadway Collection Museum in Pompano Beach, Florida. That's stupendous. Thanks. Kathy, come here a minute, will you please? This will start a new trend in musical pictures. Kathy, this is Mr. Simpson. He's thinking about casting you as Zelda's kid sister. Oh, that's wonderful, Mr. Simpson. Hey, Kathy! That's Kathy Selden. Now Don and Kathy get reacquainted via the wonderful You Were Meant For Me number. This is the proper setting. Why, it's just an empty stage. At first glance, yes. But wait a second. Now this number shows that Reynolds can more than hold her own against Kelly. Now Reynolds remarked many years later that making this movie and surviving childbirth were the two hardest things she ever had to do. Only 19 when cast to play the film, Debbie Reynolds lived with her parents and commuted to the set. She had to wake up at 4 a.m. and ride three different buses to the studio, sometimes to avoid the commute. She would just sleep on the set. As O'Connor stated earlier, Gene Kelly was a taskmaster and Debbie Reynolds found that out the hard way. She had never danced to this degree before rehearsal started. Now one day, she left the set. Fred Astaire, who was in an adjacent dance studio, found her crying under a piano and reassured her that all of her hard work was worth the effort. Now Reynolds later stated that she learned a lot from Gene Kelly. He is a perfectionist and a disciplinarian, the most exciting director I've ever worked for. And he has a good temper. Every so often he would yell at me and make me cry, but it took a lot of patience for him to work with someone who had never danced before. It's amazing that I could keep up with him and Donald O'Connor. Now, Kelly later commented on her work. Fortunately, Debbie was strong as an ox. Also, she was a great copyist, and she could pick up the most complicated routine without too much difficulty. She studied at the University of Hard Work and Pain. Now, with the talkies in full bloom, Lena takes speech lessons. Now, ta te ti to tu. Ta te ti to tu. No, no, Miss Lamont, round tones, round tones. Now, let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand them. Now, on a side note, I Kathleen Freeman, Lena Lamont's vocal coach, Phoebe Dinsmore, was uncredited in this movie. Now, you probably know Freeman from her decades-long career as a character actress in such movies as The Blues Brothers in 1980 and TV shows such as The Donna Reed Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Married with Children. The rocks, the rugged rascal ran. Around the rocks, the rugged rascal Now, Don next has his voice lesson, and we get the marvelously funny Moses Supposes number. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. But Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A Moses is a Mose, a rose is a rose, a toes is a toes. Hoop-de-doody-doodle. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. And again, as I stated earlier, only two songs were written especially for this film. This song and the Make Him Laugh number. This number shows again that O'Connor can hold his own as a dancer with Kelly and add humor. Back on the soundstage, Lena is screwing up take after take. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Yes, yes, my dear, that's much better now. Hold it a second. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic right here in the bush. Now you talk towards it. 
The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. I'll try it again. Jesus is dumb. The sneak peek of the new talkie, Dueling Cavalier, premieres to disastrous results. My father has me betrothed to the Baron de Lansfield, and I can't stand him. Sounds like a comedy inside. It's a Lockwood Lamont talkie. What? This is terrible. This is a scream. Give me pictures like the jazz singer. I love you. 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 We're ruined. We're all ruined. You can't release this picture. We've got to. We're booked open in six weeks all over the country. But you, you're such big stars, we might get by. Never want to see that Lockwood and Lamont again. Wasn't it awful? This is the worst picture ever made. I liked it. Kathy and Cosmo try to cheer Don up, and they come up with the idea to make the Dueling Cavalier a musical. Well, why don't you turn the Dueling Cavalier into a musical? Dueling Cavalier? Sure. They've got six weeks before it's released. Yeah. Add some songs and dances, trim the bad scenes, add a couple of new ones. Then you got it. Hey. Hey, I think it'll work. And they jump into the wonderfully cheerful Good Morning number. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Because he knew that her crying would hold up filming, Gene Kelly would use Donald O'Connor as his whipping boy when he was frustrated with Debbie Reynolds. Kelly knew O'Connor could take the tongue lashing he really wanted to lay on Reynolds, who was only 19 at the time of the filming. Now, the last shot of the Good Morning number with Don, Kathy, and Cosmo falling over the couch took 40 takes to film. And after they finished the Good Morning number, Debbie Reynolds had to be carried to her dressing room because she had burst some blood vessels in her feet. Despite her hard work on the Good Morning number, Gene Kelly ultimately decided to dub the sound of her feet as well as his own, as was the practice at the time. Hey. Hey, we can't make this a musical. What do you mean? Lena. 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 She can't act, she can't sing, and she can't dance. A triple threat. Yeah. Now Cosmo comes up with the perfect solution for the current predicament. Don't you get it? Use Kathy's voice. Lena just moves her mouth and Kathy's voice comes over singing and talking for her. That's wonderful. Now, now I couldn't let you do it, Kathy. Why not? Because you wouldn't be seen. You'd be throwing away your own career. It has nothing to do with my career. It's only for this one picture. The important thing now is to save the dueling Cavalier, save Lockwood and Lamont. Yeah. Now Don and Kathy share their first kiss, and Don is lighter than air. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. So let's finally talk about Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, song and dance man in Hollywood history. Certainly, you rank him right up there with Fred Astaire as number one and number two. And, you know, pick your poison. One is one and one is two. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on August 23rd, 1912, and shot to stardom in the original Broadway production of Pal Joey in 1940. MGM signed him to a one-picture deal after that, and his intent was to do that one picture and then go back to Broadway. But that picture was For Me and My Gal, starring Judy Garland. And, well, Kelly never looked back. He has 47 credits as an actor, 17 as a director, 4 in the musical department, 16 for Miscellaneous Crew, 4 as a writer, and 80 soundtrack credits. Some highlights of his career... Anchors Away in 1945, in which he danced with Jerry the Mouse. The Zigfield Follies in 1945. The Pirate in 1948. Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1949. Summer Stock in 1950. The Great in American in Paris in 1951. That film won Best Film of 1951. Singing in the Rain, of course, in 1952. Brigadoon in 54, It's Always Fair Weather in 55, Lay Girls in 57. He took a rare dramatic turn in Inherit the Wind in 1960. And then, of course, as the studio system of musicals started dying out and going out of vogue, 
He went to TV like so many other performers did and was Father Chuck O'Malley in the TV series of Going My Way. I first saw him as a kid in a TV movie production of Jack and the Beanstalk in 1967. He was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor in Leading Role for Anchors Away in 1945 and won an honorary Oscar in 1952 in appreciation of his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer, and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film. He later received Lifetime Achievement Awards in the Kennedy Center Honors in 1982 and from the Screen Actors Guild and American Film Institute in 1999. The American Film Institute also ranked him as the 15th greatest male screen legend of classic Hollywood cinema. Oh, and he and Fred Astaire hosted a variety of movies celebrating the golden age of the Hollywood musicals, movies entitled That's Entertainment. He passed away on February 2nd, 1996, at the age of 83. Dancing and singing in the rain some other notes on this number, probably the most famous song and dance number in Hollywood musicals history. Now, according to legend, and this has been disputed, milk was added to the water to make the rain appear more visible on camera. Now, this song was shot out of doors on one of the permanent streets built on the studio backlot, the East Side Street. Now, the Sing in the Rain number took all day to set up, and Gene was very ill, some say with a fever of over 101. When it was all set up, Kelly insisted on doing a take, even though the blocking was only rudimentary and co-director Stanley Downing was ready to send him home. He ad-libbed most of it, and it only took one take, which is what you see in the film, at least according to legend. Now, this was the seventh time the song Singing in the Rain was used on the big screen. It was introduced in the Hollywood Review of 1929, where it was sung twice. And then a clip from this movie was later used as part of the talking montage in Babes in Arms. Jimmy Durante sang it briefly in Speak Easily in 1932. In The Old Dark House, Melvin Douglas enters singing the song. Judy Garland put her spin on it in Little Nellie Kelly in 1940. And the song was also featured as an elaborate musical sequence performed by William Bendix and cast in The Babe Ruth Story in 1948. Now, according to supplemental information on the DVD, the first time they tried to film the Singing in the Rain sequence, they shot it in late afternoon. Unfortunately, the homeowners in the area had just come home from work and had all turned on their lawn sprinklers so there was not enough water pressure for the rain to work. They finally filmed sequence the next day, early enough so that everyone was at work and the water pressure was adequate for the shot. Again, apocryphal or not, who knows? It makes for a good story. Now, filming starts and Kathy Seld and Debbie Reynolds sings. Now, this is juxtaposed against Lena's bad singing. Now, a side note, in the looping sequence where Kathy is seen dubbing the dialogue from Lena Lamont, it's not Reynolds who is really speaking. It's actually Gene Hagen herself, who actually had a beautiful, deep, rich voice. So you have Gene Hagen dubbing Debbie Reynolds, who is dubbing Gene Hagen. Confused? Selden girl is great. As soon as the picture is released, I'm going to give her a big build-up. Swell. Don, how much is there left to do? Uh, one scene and a number. What number? Well, it's a new one. It's for the modern part of the picture. We then get the Broadway melody number, which is a fantastic number featuring the great Sid Charisse that really is more reminiscent of An American in Paris than this film. But what the heck? Bring a frown to old Broadway. Ah, you got a clown on Broadway. Your troubles there, 
style for Broadway always wears a smile. Now, the Broadway ballet sequence was originally to have featured Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor, but O'Connor was forced to leave because of a prior TV commitment. So Sid Charisse was tapped to replace him. She was made up to look like Louise Brooks and had to diet off the extra pounds she had just gained during her recent pregnancy. Charisse, a ballet dancer who never worked before in heels, had to adjust her dancing style considerably to mesh with Kelly's jazz background. Now before this film, Charisse had appeared in films as a dance specialty or as a supporting player since her arrival at MGM in 1944. After this, she was elevated to star status. Her next film was The Bandwagon in 1953 with Fred Astaire. Although uncredited, Gene Kelly had two incredibly talented choreography assistants. These ladies were none other than Carol Haney, star of The Pajama Game in 1957, and Gwen Verdon, major Broadway star of Can Can, New Girl in Town, Damn Yankees, Redhead, Sweet Charity, and Chicago. In fact, Kelly's taps during the Singin' in the Rain number were post-dubbed by Verdon and Haney. Now, the Broadway melody scene was a late addition to the film because Arthur Freed was encouraged by how well a similar sequence in the American Paris had turned out. So he suggested that Gene and Stanley Donovan conceive a similar scene after most of the rest of the film had been shot. Now, Kelly choreographed his dance scenes with Charisse to hide the fact that she was taller than he was. To keep the height difference from being obvious, Kelly staged the routine so that the two were rarely upright when standing next to each other, always bending toward or away from one another instead. Now, Charisse had to be taught how to smoke a cigarette for the sequence. She stated that she never smoked another cigarette after that. Now for the dream segment, Kelly choreographed a scarf dance using an enormous 50-foot veil of white china silk attached to Sid Charisse's costume. And it is quite stunning, this portion of the dance. Now Charisse said that the veil she wore caught enough breeze from the fan that the pole almost caused her to lose her balance during some of the steps. Now in the steamy vamp dance segment of this, reviewers from both the Production Code and the Catholic Church's Legency of Decency objected to a brief suggestive pose of movement between the dancers. And there's a very quick cut that I think was made to appease these groups. Now Debbie Reynolds was going to play Gene Kelly's partner in this, but her dancing wasn't up to it. So they tried to get Leslie Caron, who danced with Kelly in American in Paris, but she was unavailable. So they went to Sid Charisse. A good choice indeed. Now, once we are through with this fantastic number, we fade back to RF's office, who says... I can't quite visualize it. I'll have to see it on film first. On film, it'll be better yet. Now, get going, fellas. Don't forget, you've got to have that Selin girl re-record all of Lena's dialogue. It's all set up. And remember, don't let Lena know about it. Okay, now we're heading full steam into the final part of the film. Kathy dubs her voice for Lena. Now, Lena finds out through her friend Zelda, a young Rita Moreno. Thanks, Zelda. You're a real pal. Oh, anytime, Don. Now, Lena pulls rank over Don and shows that she is smarter than we have given her credit for. What do you think I am? Dumb or something? I had my lawyer go over my contract. Contract? Yes. And I control my publicity, not you. Yeah? Yeah. The studio's responsible for every word printed about me. If I don't like it, I can sue. What? She has RF over a barrel, and he reluctantly has to agree not to give Kathy Selden any publicity for her work. But Lena is not done. Just one little thing more. 
Yes, you want me to change the name of the studio to Lamont Pictures Incorporated? Oh, R.F., you're cute. Now, I was just thinking, you've given this little girl Parton's eldest picture, and you're going to give her an even bigger one in the next? So what? So, if she's done such a grand job doubling for my voice, don't you think she ought to go on doing just that? Now, these scenes show why Hagen was a deserving Oscar nominee. People just don't do things like that. People! I ain't people. I am a, a shimmering, glowing star in the cinema firmament. We then head to the Dancing Cavalier premiere. And would you dare to say, let's do the same as The show is a hit, and Lena decides to make a speech. A speech, Don. They're yelling for a speech. A speech? Yeah, everybody's always making speeches for me. But tonight I'm going to do my own talking. I'm going to make the speech. The audience wants Lena to sing. Don convinces Kathy to sing for Lena, and as Lena starts to lip sync, they pull the curtain up and expose Lena, for Kathy is shown singing behind her. And then Cosmo joins in. Now Kathy tries to leave the theater embarrassed, but Don stops her. Ladies and gentlemen, stop that girl. That girl running up the aisle, stop her. That's the girl whose voice you heard and loved tonight. She's the real star of the picture, Kathy Selvin. Lena is exposed as a fraud. Kathy is hailed as a star. Don and Kathy reconcile and reunite in song, of course. We then fade to a shot of Kathy and Don standing in front of a billboard heralding them as the big stars of monumental pictures in a film entitled... Singing in the rain. They kiss, and we fade out. The end. Postscript. Previews were held in October, November, and December of 1951, so a number of people got to see the completed film before it went into general release in 1952. Now, the film was only a modest hit when first released. O'Connor won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and Betty Comden and Adolph Green won the Writers Guild of America Award for their screenplay, while Gene Hagen was the only thing nominated for an Academy Award. Now, according to MGM Records, during the film's initial theatrical release, it made $3.2 million in the U.S. and Canada and $2.3 million internationally, earning the studio a profit of $666,000. It was the 10th highest grossing movie of the year in the U.S. and Canada. However, it has since been accorded legendary status by contemporary critics and is frequently regarded as the best film musical ever made and the best film ever made in the Freed Unit at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. It has topped the AFI's Greatest Movie Musicals list and is ranked as the fifth greatest American motion picture of all time in its updated list of the greatest American films in 2007. In 1989, the United States Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry. In 2005, the British Film Institute included it in its list of the 50 films to be seen by the age of 14. And Sight and Sound Magazine's 2017 list of the 50th great films of all time places Singing in the Rain in 20th place. And most importantly, the Bank of Marquis has this movie in its top 10, and oftentimes in its top 5 movies of all time. Now, as the film's stature grows with each passing year, it becomes all the more mystifying that, at the time of its release, it was considered nothing more than an enjoyable and profitable MGM musical, one of the many released the same year. 
It received only two Academy Award nominations and lost both. This film spawned a Broadway stage adaptation. Directed and choreographed by Twyla Tharp, the musical opened on July 2, 1985 at the Gershwin Theater after 39 previews and ran for 367 performances, closing on May 18, 1986. Next time on the Bank of Marquis Movies Podcast. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. That's what's coming up next on the Think of Marquis Movie Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, email us at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. Check out the website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time... I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching.